2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast, the first of the new year. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy, and happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year to you. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm I'm genuinely refreshed. How are you? I'm all right. How often can you
3: say I'm genuinely refreshed? That's I know. I'm not good. sure it's
2: going to last very long, but, you know, well it, well, it does. You've said it now. You can't <laughs> exactly. take it back. Might be gone by the end of today. But anyway, tell me, um, let's have a reading catch up. What What did you read over the over the break?
3: I have to say I was busier than I thought I would be. Oh, I'm sorry. And I didn't settle down and read great works of, uh, you know, new and important great works of literature. I'll tell you what genres and then you'll get an idea. Okay. I read cookery books.
2: Mm-hmm, great. <laughs> uh,
3: some gardening books for solace because it was December um I read space opera as I like to do yes because I, f- I feel it's educational as well as thrilling um and some fantasy
2: sounds like a very rich diet
3: yeah but it was quite a lot of rereading as well what I mean is it was bits here and there right do you know what I mean a bit of this and a bit of that so right. so lots of reading but nothing very coherent what about you I bet you I bet you did something more um a bit more solid
2: um, well, I finished the Franzén, which I'd mentioned that I was reading solid. a couple of podcasts ago. It is so- certainly large, um, not a very practical book to take on travels. No, incredibly heavy hardback of seven hundred pages or something. Th- thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs. Um, when I last mentioned it, the thumbs were up. The thumb, or well, you know, the thumbs mm. were pointing generally upwards. And I, I don't know. I, I, re- I really enjoyed it for the most part. But then towards the end, I just felt it lost its power a little bit and I was a bit disappointed by the ending it was the most difficult mm. bit mm. um ask me again in a week um but now I read Mbolo Mbue's book which I'd been meaning to it was out earlier last year how beautiful we were I really enjoyed that it's, it's a novel um, is it yes it's a novel and it's set in a in a, a fictional um village in in Africa and it's about Uh, an american oil company that comes to town and sets up and for generations and generations has been polluting the water and and so the topsoil and 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 the crops and and it's about the fallout you know real and all different kinds of fallout from from Mm. that uh, and the kind of the bargains that that are struck and how people try to survive it um i yeah i really recommend that and then i've just Mm. been reading a bit like you sort of dipping and dabbing and and um I've started reading the new, there's a new Elena Ferrante book. Um, it's out in Italy already. Uh, I think it's coming out in March or April in, in the UK, but it's right. out in Italy and it's, it's um, essays, I margini e il dittato, and I don't know what it will be called. In, I think in English it's going to just be called In the Margins or something, but it's sort of essays about about writing and and that sort of stuff. So I've just started that. And now I'm back, I'll probably just just collapse and my, my reading will fall off a cliff
3: no that's fair that's much better than i managed you win
2: okay great cool excellent it Won is a competition <laughs> it win. is it's only reading is only ever competitive it's the only reason we do it <laughs> Coming up on this week's show, How Are Mother Tongues Lost and Found? Irina Dimitrescu will tell us about an engrossing and poignant study of bilingualism, Memory Speaks on Losing and Reclaiming Language and Self, by Julie Sidivi. But first, some of my favourite pieces to work on and read at the TLS are the ones where, perhaps because of a new biography or a reissued book or two, our writer revisits the work of a well-known figure, recontextualizing and reconsidering things with which we might have thought ourselves familiar there's always something more to be said always a new detail or angle of approach this week the writer editor and translator chiara marcelli takes on the challenge of that master of the uncanny antonio Tabucchi, who died a decade ago this year the task is not an easy one as potential meanings and alternative realities proliferate reading tabuki you're never quite sure if you've understood correctly Nothing about his writing lends itself to being pinned down. But the rewards for trying are as clear as day. Chiara Marchelli joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Chiara.
4: Hi, hello, everyone.
2: Hello, thanks for joining us. Now, the occasion, we should say, for this piece was offered by three reissues. Uh, In English of Tabuki, there's uh, Little Misunderstandings of No Importance in Other Stories, translated by Francis uh, Frenet. Requiem, translated by Margaret Joel Costa, and Pereira Maintains, which is translated by Patrick Krieg, uh, they've all now achieved the enviable billing of Penguin's modern classics. Uh, now, presumably your familiarity with Tabucchi was in Italian, even though not all of these were first written in Italian. Has it, has it been a while since you'd last read him? And if it is, if you did first encounter him in, in Italian, was it strange to encounter him now in English?
4: The first time that I read the book, he was uh, in my early twenties, and I started with um, Pereira maintains. I was given that book; I didn't even choose it, and I feel that I was um, too young, maybe, to to read that book. And I see that also because I've, I've been teaching this same book this semester, this past semester in fall at NYU, and at a group of people who were the same age as me when I started reading Tabuki. And it was uh, so curious for me to see and so interesting for me to see their reaction to the book compared to mine. And also these reactions compared to mine uh, this summer, this spring, when I read that book and the others as well. And besides these three, many more, because I think that I honestly fell in love with him now that I'm a little bit older in mm. my twenties and also as a writer because I was already i was starting as a writer back then and now uh having published several novels already, I find some themes and his conception his concept his idea of literature is so useful for me so nourishing um, so it was a completely different experience reading him in English didn't really add or change too much to that because I'm kind of used to teaching Italian and teaching translation as well the, the experience of it was really really uh, different and very deep and it's so funny because uh, Tabuki sets his stories in landscapes. They are very unfamiliar to me because I've never been to Portugal, for instance. But the way he describes atmospheres and the way he penetrates character, psychologies and places and tastes, and it always resonates with me in a way that reminds me of myself and of my experience.
2: Mm, it's interesting because as you described it there there is something about the way he writes about places which is both highly specific and also has this kind of it could almost be anywhere there's almost like a universal quality to to the way he describes these places yes
4: I agree with that and that's also why I think such a universal writer because he can like many all of the great writers they can be they must be very specific about the places and people that he tell that they write about. But if they tap into the universal, then they can reach anyone, I believe. My first feelings when I reopened his books was that he was scared of nothing. (laughs) He had no fear at all. He would just feel like writing something and he would do it. Whatever he wrote was so different from whatever he had done before. But the main point is that he was never focused on himself. He was always very curious about the other, telling the other, observing. And he he attributed his,
2: his disquiet, which is something that a lot of people note in his work, this disquiet he attributes to almost like an overload of messages received.
4: Yes, and I I actually love that. And I mention it very often, especially when I'm asked why my novels are so disquieting. (laughs) And I say, I always say, well, Tabuki said it, so I can say it too. And I, well, that comes from Pessoa. And I do believe that literature, he he did believe that literature did not serve to console people. It was useless if. Uh, it, it wasn't literature's task to consult people. It had to disquiet. So in other words, he has to raise questions rather than providing answers. Otherwise, it's not literature. It's like bad TV. I, I really think that all his narrative world was based on this. And we can see that in his books, there are very little firm points. Everything is... Uh, kind of uncertain and um, precise, but not confusing at all, just disquieting again.
2: Shall we touch on his biography a little then? He was, I mean, because he was born during a particularly intense period of the Second World War. And I suppose this is, this is interesting because of the historical moment, but also because he's always had such a strong interest in the role of of chance and how that, you know, these unplanned events, how they shape everything that follows.
4: Yes, he was born during the war, during the second world war on September twenty-fourth, nineteen forty-three. And the reason why I remember this date so well is that my father was born the very same day. So
2: <laughs> another and, chance.
4: <laughs> another chance, exactly. You that's why I'm mentioning it, because it's funny that coincidences are all over around us always just need to be grasped and, mm. and told so he was born during the second world war and he was taken to his grandparents house in um, a village near Pisa Vecchiano and uh, he was brought there uh, on a bicycle by his father or mother I don't remember and uh, and then he stayed there he was raised by his grandparents until he went to university in Pisa. And then from there, he went to Paris to, uh, to study a little and then went back to, for his graduation. And so he went through so many, I believe, interesting, you know, well, dramatic, but also interesting phases, the war first and then, which is interesting, all the cultural life and, and transformation and exploration, experimentation in France, And then when he came back and started to write himself, I think it was also a very interesting time here in Italy because it was the 70s. So the years of lead and politics changing so much and feminism, um, all the students' movement, I think that he uh, went through all these ages always, again, as an antenna, absorbing very much and reverting that information into literature and pouring it into literature, Um, not being afraid of leaving things behind, leaving models, languages that didn't work anymore behind. And I think that it's easy to see this in um, little misunderstandings of no importance because there are so many different genres and so many different styles. Sometimes it can feel... I don't know, not uh, a little unbalanced in a way, if we want to, if we hope to find a very unitary book. But that's why I love that short story collection so much because there's a whole universe into that that reflects, I believe, some of the first uh, part of his life and this uncertainty that we're talking about and coincidence and chance and the, his passages through all these phases that forced him to change every time his way to interpret reality around him.
2: And one of the most consequential encounters and, and kind of long-lasting relationships and influences that that he came across in, in, his, in his early stages of development was um, with Portugal and the Portuguese language and Portuguese uh, literature, and specifically with um, Fernando Pessoa, Can you tell us a bit about that, what it was
4: that, you know, drew him in so strongly? Chance, again. (laughs) Well, at least the first encounter with him. Um, He was in Paris and looking for, while waiting for a train to go back to Pisa, he was looking for a book to read. Um, And he um, picked up the, the cheapest one, that the, the least expensive, which was Tabacaria, which is the tobacconist uh, that was published by um, Pessoa, well, Alvaro de Campos, which is one, was one of his attorneys. And uh, he read that long poem on the train. And for what I understand, he basically fell in love with it. And uh, once back in Pisa, he found a... Um, Portuguese language course he enrolled in it and at the end of the year he came out first so then also by chance discovered that there was the possibility to to spend some time abroad to spend some time in Lisboa and he took that chance and left and then as he said in the interview life did the rest and he said life always takes charges of doing the rest because He fell in love with the country, fell in love with the language, and then fell in love with his wife. So he started to live in Portugal and became one of the greatest experts on Pessoa. I think that one of the reasons is not just because he loved the language or he loved the country, but also because the themes in Pessoa are so close to his own interests, all this again, uncertainty and uh, this dream-like atmosphere, the saudade as well, which is this kind of painful sense of nostalgia. And, and again, also the uncanny uh, Freud's Um Eichlich, uh, which is the... the a sense of discomfort in in what should be familiar, but is not. And I think that all these themes were, again, resonating with him so much that I don't exclude the idea that um, maybe he chose to, to stay there also because he found those themes in daily life, because we, as humans, are the product of our environment as well. So I was, I, I wonder myself being somebody who left Italy and went abroad. I wondered what what is it that mm-hmm. kept him there instead of, you know, just you, you do your thing at the university, you go back to Pisa, and then you you start your career as a writer there and you stay there, and he kept going back and forth and then for a long time just resided in Portugal and Mm -hmm. always always wrote about Pessoa and he was the first translator of Pessoa in Italy helped by his wife and I think that all these probably well I think because he said it but all this is part of the same experience you cannot really divide up pieces of your life into okay this is my job this is my place this is my wife i think that he just lived that kind of saudade and all that came with it in his Mm. daily life
2: yeah and you can you can almost see how in in doing that in living that way and in living as an Italian in Portugal and, and then kind of moving backwards and forwards. And he was always in this time writing for the most part in, in Italian and, and writing for Italian publications and all of that sort of stuff. But you could see how that allowed him to continually remind himself what it is to be both inside and outside and to belong and not belong. And those are the themes that, that fueled, fueled his whole kind of way of thinking
4: yes yes absolutely and uh, that's also why probably um some readers don't like um that kind of atmosphere when they're faced with a book they prefer to have certainties rather than not belonging <laughs> or that sense of um, being somewhere else it's it's um one of the quotes that I love by Tabuk is uh, something that he mentioned really often when he was asked why he wrote and he immediately corrected the question saying, well, I wouldn't really ask why I write, but why do we write? Why Why one writes? Mm, why does anyone write? Yes. And he, he just listed a, a, some, a series of questions that are so, important let me just read a few of those uh do we write because we fear death or because we're afraid to leave because we're nostalgic for childhood um because do we write because we're here and we like to be there or do we write because we went there but perhaps it would have been better for us to stay here so all of this uh is uh uncomfortable and um, unsettling in a way and my I, I love it because I live the same but I don't think that you have to go through this same experience in your life to feel that especially these times and these days especially in the last two years where we seem to lack anything <laughs> that is going to be stable but I think that that's exactly where we must not be afraid to go because that's where life happens and you were mentioning before the fact that he would always write in Italian, and that's something else that I wonder about. And I wonder why, after all these years, only Requiem was written in Portuguese. And well, I'm I'm guessing here. I don't I don't know, but I think that when you live in a constant state of foreignness, there is something they need to. To be there all the time. And it could be writing for him or for Mm. writers, like art, but it can also be language. And there are also many levels of language when you speak, when you write, when you listen. Uh, And it is my feeling that for Tabuki, writing was going deep into that uh, level of unconsciousness as well, so that you just needed to let things go and let them be uncontrolled. Um, So again, the the, the universe of Tabuki, I think, was revolving around this feeling that nothing can be controlled and nothing is certain and chance. And the deepest areas of your consciousness are the origin of literature
3: Mm. I think did you say that um, with Requiem also he tried to translate it into Italian and he couldn't do it he was like no I couldn't I couldn't write this in Italian I had to write in Portuguese and someone else translated it into Italian is that right
4: yes I I found this interview where he was telling about this anecdote and he was in Paris um, while doing some research and he had a dream he dreamed of his father who was talking to him in portuguese and then when he woke up he uh, wrote down this dream but in portuguese because Mm -hmm. it was a dialogue a conversation so he just transcribed the conversation and then he went back to it with the idea of continuing it to, to make a story out of it and he tried to do that in italian it didn't work So he continued in Portuguese. And then once it was complete, um, he thought of translating it to to give it to to his publisher. But again, it didn't work out. He he just wouldn't translate into Italian for him. So he asked a friend then to translate it in Italian for him. He didn't do it. And it's, um, it's a curious thing because, first of all, that was the only thing that he wrote in Portuguese which is already quite uh, strange and then the story just didn't want to be to come out in Italian for him Mm. (laughs) and I thought that this was very funny because sometimes writers talk about the leadership of a story the fact that it's very arrogant sometimes like characters drag you into a story language Mm. and the plot and there's Sometimes it also sounds ridiculous when we say it, but sometimes you feel that it, there's nothing you can do against the story. And I think this is one of those anecdotes where the story just di- dictates its own nature and mm. language. Mm.
2: Um,
4: Requiem is, is
2: one of the three books that, um, as we said, have been uh, reissued. Uh, there are two other ones, Little Misunderstandings of No Importance, which is uh, an extraordinary extraordinarily varied collection of stories. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that one.
4: Yes. Um, Again, as you say, it's a collection of short stories. And as I was mentioning before, these stories belong to very different genres. They go from the uh, ghost story to the existentialist story, uh, philosophical, realist novellas. There is a little bit of all the possible... um, declinations of literature into that collection Um, the again these characters are like all of Tabuki's characters um, people who are exposed to whatever life brings and they try to react to to that some of them uh, try to um, struggle against their destiny some others um, try to change Uh, desperately what their life has become but uh, none of them seems to be really in charge of their own destiny and so what remains in the end is sovereignty of chance for for all of them I um, I really love this book also because it's again because of its difference because of the fact that mm, There are so many different characters. They're they're very different uh, between, I mean, from one another. And the fact that everything revolves around misunderstandings and regrets and uh, memories that are misleading in the end or maybe wrong. And I think that in this short story collection, it's as if whole life was summed up and uh, these characters had the chance to represent each of them a different aspect of, uh, of the mystery of life and I think it's extremely rich and, um, and also spread all over the world it's not, again, always because he wasn't talking about himself but always looking around he, even the time um, frames are different there's second world War and there's contemporary times and there are many places there's uh, India and the United States and Italy and there's a party and there's I mean it you don't have the time to settle in <laughs> into one that you have to change completely setting and and characters and I and I really
2: love this you summarise things very well. I think when you say um, you say that he treated genres not according to their supposed prestige, but as if they were containers into which literature might be poured. And the the effect of reading the collection, because it, as you say, it chops and changes so much, and you know between genre and and place and character and and so on, the effect is almost like um, like when you have a fever and you there is like a feverish quality to it i think and you sort of you you feel like you can see reality you can see this truth at the same time as everything being kind of hazy and unsure so you kind of you both know something and don't know anything at the same time
4: yes which is how we go about in life and i that that's also why i i like him so much but yes it's uh, um, i i it's again this way of writing, this way of approaching literature, which is just looking around and distilling whatever Tabuki felt that was important for us without giving us uh, perimeters and answers. I think that was already something incredible, but also I like his democratic approach mm-hmm. to literature and we have a very big, among the many but a very big flaw here in Italy which is to treat literature as something that comes from up high mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the skies and yes and still today um, and I really appreciate the very practical approach that he had he said basically literature must feed on life If you do not live, you don't have anything to tell. And in order to live, you have to live down below. You have to be on earth. And that's what you must be interested in. And he was very much critical towards the Italian intelligentsia, uh, which insisted on separating life and literature as if they were two different stories in a building or two different planes completely.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and again, talking about refreshing, I think that this was, is still today very refreshing and uh, kind of some, well, if I think of it, sometimes also I think that I call it revolutionary because we're very much taken by ourselves. And I think that um, literature is one of the crafts and the arts and the disciplines but it's a job.
2: On a parting note Chiara and without wishing to be uh, reductive do you have a, a favorite among these three reissues or you know a, a work which you would recommend um, as the one that people unfamiliar with Tabuki who are really wanting to get a sense of you know his world and his style and, and the mood he creates where should they start?
4: Well I think that uh, because of the number of times that I mentioned it <laughs> during this conversation, um, I would say a little misunderstanding is of no importance. I think that, the, uh, again, the whole world of Tabuki is into that book. And being short stories, uh, well, they could be discouraging for novel uh, readers, But they read so well and they bring you as a reader into such a wide world that you have all the time to uh, penetrate these stories and live through each, uh, each one of them satisfyingly without feeling that it's too short. And everything is in there. His themes, the perfection of his language... Uh, his philosophy, his commitment as a writer, uh, his irony, which is, I think, is very important in his production. So um, it's varied and it contains everything I feel uh, that he did throughout his career. So I would say that one. Okay,
2: and I'm unhelpfully going to suggest that everyone read Requiem. So Lucy, if you could now unhelpfully suggest that everyone read I think read, everyone should. Do the main <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's that's everyone's work set out for them. Um, Chiara Marcelli, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: And we should say that Chiara's article on Tabuki is followed by a long and deep study of Fernando Pessoa by Claudia Passos Alonso, who's reviewing a mammoth life of the writer. Uh, they make a fascinating pair. on the show what can speaking more than one language do to a person's sense of self what if they then lose one of those languages how should they get it back or if you want to learn a new language late in life what's the best way to go about it and what might that do for the way you see yourself and the world we'll be talking bilingualism not bilingually with Irina Dimitrescu And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, Lucy, you're going to introduce our next item.
3: Yes, and we are staying in somewhat the same area, which is to say languages, whether they be borrowed, learned, lost or rediscovered. Language is not just a means of sharing knowledge. It is also a temple, a refuge, a sacred mountaintop and a home. So writes Julie Sedivy in her book, Memory Speaks, on losing and reclaiming language and self. We have a lovely piece about it in the paper this week by Irina Domitrescu, so we're delighted that she can join us. Irina, many thanks for talking to us today. I'm delighted to be here too. Uh, I'm going to say many thanks for talking to us in English. We were talking earlier, dear and, and, and Chiara could have talked to us in Italian, and you can talk to us, I think, in two other languages, if you if you felt like it. A Romanian and German fluently and then others with a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you've had a glass of wine or not, but it's absolutely up to you. But but we will we will be sticking to English, sadly, <laughs> but with, with the others bubbling away in the background. Um so what what does what does Julie said
5: of his book, Memory Speaks? What does it aim to do? Well, I it's a fascinating book because it's really about language grief and the main thread of the book is Julie Sedevi's own loss of her native Czech language. Uh, English is her fifth language. Uh, she had a migration history that took her through many different tongues. And through that process, she lost her mother tongue. And uh, this is a person who clearly felt the loss of her, of her first language very deeply, um, the loss of connection to her own father, to her own home culture. And that spurred the inquiry into what it actually means both for individuals and for communities to lose language. Uh, She's also she's a trained linguist so she can actually draw on uh, research to to try to understand that Uh, but uh, one of the things that comes out is that linguistic research doesn't really give a full picture of what it means to lose or to attempt to relearn uh, a language. Memoirs, personal experience, uh, these are the sources that kind of fill out uh, the picture of, of this really unique relationship between an individual and the different languages they inhabit.
3: Yeah because you say it's it, it's there's the scholarship there and as you say she draws on lots of studies and, and, and evidence and that sort of thing but then her own history is woven into it and you say that's particularly apt when writing about languages.
5: Well, absolutely, because so much of languages we experience it, I think, and certainly as multilingual people experience it, has to do with emotion. And emotions, as Sedevi also points out, are not really treated with a great deal of sophistication in research. They're often, you know, really blunt terms, anger, love, and so on. Uh, but we often have much more complex experiences of our emotions that are also tied to the languages and tied to the the individual words we might have for something like longing or depression or, or love or enchantment. Uh, So it's, it's quite difficult to test for that sort of thing or to test for what, uh, what an emotional experience of the tongue might be. Mm. Uh,
2: That's so, that, that part's so interesting to me. And I mean, the the emphasis on emotion in the equation, because it seems to me, and I don't, I don't, I'm not in any way specialised in the field of linguistics, Um, perhaps you can tell me, but to me, it seems particularly new and important, this emphasis, partly because for me, it resonates so strongly, but also because, yeah, it it probably will perplex people who think that learning and keeping a language is about dry and repetitive uh, exercises and, and building blocks and things like that. And I think the removal of human feeling from language learning and maintaining is is probably the reason why so many people seem to think that they can't learn languages, that you know their brains simply don't work that way because that way means a kind of neutered state or something.
5: Oh my goodness, yes, and we could talk about this for a couple of hours. But, <laughs> uh, I guess what I'd say two things. One of them is that it's it's been a trend for a while longer in linguistics to to study emotions and language learning and, and language loss. Um, Aneta Pavlenko is a scholar whom said he cites often, and she's really been one of the major uh, figures in, in this and in trying to kind of fill out the picture. Uh, but the other point is, yes, a lot of scholarship on language learning and on multilingualism is done on university students who are learning a language in a classroom environment. And that's actually not authentic to what most multilingual experience around the world is. Most people learn languages in natural settings, uh, dealing with different people, with songs, with books, with television, um, with contextual use of the language. And so this university-type language learning, or even what's often done in grade school or in high school, is so artificial, and it's really also not a very good way to teach languages. Um, So there's some evidence that we learn languages best when we are connected to people with those languages, and when our use of the language is highly emotional. I think this is probably why a lot of people like to learn the swear words in the foreign (laughs) language early (laughs) on.
3: Because they're always said very emphatically and with real emotion, not like where is the syndicat Initiative?" kind of thing, which <laughs> yeah. no, no one has ever said, I think, in French, which I
5: learned a lot. <laughs> I know. And, and Sedevi talks about being fascinated with Quebecois swear words. And I have to say, as a Canadian myself, I've also, I love Quebecois swear words because they're religious. Mm. The worst ones are have to do with oh, Christianity. Yes. like tabernacle. Yeah. Stuff. Oh, tabernacle. my goodness. You can't <laughs> Sorry, say that. Sorry, did I say a very thing? Tabanoche, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, obviously, I... I, I That would be an impolite thing to say if I were actually in Quebec, but uh, this is what's so fascinating about, about those words, because they allow us to experience in the second language something of what we already do feel in our first language and, they, and they, you often find um this is just
3: a complete aside but um i wrote a review of call my agent which you know every, everybody loves the tv show the french tv show and so many people i talked to about it th- 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 that the swearing is what they got from it not, not because there is particularly a lot of it but because it is so heartfelt mm-hmm. and it's very rhythmic as well and easy to pick up and and yeah p- people said oh yeah it really taught me how to swear in french and i was like well there are other virtues <laughs> to the show but <laughs> anyway sorry that's a digression um one thing i was going to ask that, that i found really fascinating um it, you say in your piece many multilingual people report feeling that their personality shifts according to the language they're speaking so i i can i ask you two if you find that because i've
5: got you here i'm the impoverished one you're the ones with all the languages do you find this I actually have never felt that. And that's funny to me because I know so many multilinguals who say they do feel that way. I've also met multilinguals who will speak in a different um, pitch of voice, depending on which language they speak. Mm. But for me, um, it has to do with the extent to which I can express my personality in each language. Mm. So when I speak German, I can't really get my full sense of humor across. And that's something that I feel even now, though I'm fluent in German, uh, in Romanian, I can get much more of it across, even though in many ways, my Romanian is not, no longer as good as my German. So I think that to me is, is the distinction. I'm just not, I'm my full self in English (laughs) and a little bit less in my other languages.
2: That's interesting. I think that, that definitely, uh, chimes with me, the sense of humor part, um, has always been a thing that that sort of makes you feel if you can't quite express your sense of humor in a language you feel like you're again a kind of stunted version of yourself um and for me it's chopped and changed a fair bit since in sort of different phases of my life and when I was living in Italy until I was 18 um I I probably felt much more balanced than I do now having spent mm. almost 18 years in the UK and my sense of humor I think has always been far more English than than Italian actually specifically far more Scouse probably <laughs> mm-hmm. than than, uh, than English even um but that really does that is, it is it's that's the way that you kind of uh, you can feel sort of imbalanced in your languages I sort of think of it being a bit of a holy grail and uh and there I suppose there are some people like I
3: remember Samuel Beckett basically he turned to French didn't he because he just felt that he couldn't he couldn't do what he wanted to do he couldn't express what he wanted yeah. to express in English it felt too I think it felt too cliched for him or something it had to be kind of new though that's that's not a personality shift but that's a kind of writerly shift I used to find when I was learning French that I was I was a lot more um forceful um in French maybe even aggressive So oh, that's interesting. but I, th- I I now think looking back on it now I wonder I, there's a little bit of that might be true but i wonder if it was because i just had to get my point across a lot so you <laughs> yeah. know so i had to kind of um but but i don't know but it's it's um it's also the, the thing about I, I can see what you mean with humor because humor is so subtle a lot of the time i mean not always obviously of you might like people slipping on banana skins but when it's verbal it's very very subtle isn't it and you have to know
5: the culture pretty well often Absolutely. But I wanted to go back to a point, I think sometimes the restrictions in uh, a learned language, uh, or even in, in one's own language, which has been partly forgotten, that can be an advantage too. Uh, and I'm thinking of some of the studies that uh, Sedevi discusses on emotionality and language and how, you know, sometimes when people are recalling an event that took place in, um, in their strongest language and using that same tongue to to recall it um, the language becomes much more emotional and has more detail and so on but on the other hand there are also studies that show uh, that people can be much more uh, cool-headed and less biased when they're judging situations in a in a second language Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there's certainly there are cases where you know people will in therapy when they're in you know using their first language will have a more will be more attuned to to their emotions but sometimes using an acquired language can give them a distance which is really necessary at a certain mm. point i mean if the memory is traumatic sometimes it's it's a little hard to face that straight on so dealing with it in another language can can be a, a relief as well so that that was one of the interesting sort of little subplots um of memory speaks that uh, the fact that we don't Inhabit every language in the exact same way, and that we might be more limited in another language, can also be a kind of freedom.
2: Yeah, we mm. were talking earlier, the the previous guest. Um, we were talking with Chiara Marchelli about Antonio Tabucchi and about how uh, he wrote always in Italian, except for this one book, uh, Requiem, which came to him in a dream, and it came to him in Portuguese, and so he had to write it in Portuguese and. And, and the reason for that in part seems to have been um, because it concerned the death of his father. Mm. Um, and so he was just unable, not only was he unable to write it outright in Italian, he was also then unable to translate it himself from Portuguese to Italian. It was like a block. I've oh. written one
5: essay in Romanian as an adult a couple of years ago, and it was marvelous because I had no writer's block because I just wrote whatever I could. (laughs) I really, you know, and if the words that came to me weren't exactly what I meant, I didn't worry about them. I put them down because the words were there and the grammar was there. So it was a wonderfully liberating experience, just not being a perfectionist about my use of language, which I definitely would be in English.
2: Yeah, again, I mean, that's sort of, again, I mean, I mentioned, um, I mentioned Jumpy Lahiri earlier, and that's something that she describes as well, because she wrote her first novel, I think it was last year, yes. her first novel straight into Italian. Um, and she she wrote about that same thing of feeling almost like, yes, she had to turn her other languages off, but in so doing, she found a kind of a freedom of just putting one word in front of another and, and the framework of worry and, and self-criticism falling away to a degree
3: i have to say that i remember r- r- writing in french and finding it absolutely terrifying <laughs> because because it because it's because it's quite formal mm. and I, so i would i was absolutely terrified of making mistakes but, and i did make lots of mistakes and i was a lot more i felt a lot more cramped that way because i was worried about doing it wrong so but maybe that's because i wasn't far enough along and um, it feeds into the uh, another thing that you say arena and um, other studies reveal what many immigrants already know acquired languages interfere with the grammar pronunciation and categories conceptual categories of one's mother tongue which is really interesting as well it kind of it doesn't just it's not like you've got English over here and you know German or Italian or Romanian or whatever over there they they complicate each other don't they absolutely
5: and this is something that I think most people who have emigrated or lived in another country um, know that the, the new language interferes very fast and it becomes quite difficult to find the right word. You know, you get that tip of the tongue feeling of trying to grasp what a telephone is or something absolutely banal. Um, what surprised me, though, were that there were also studies that showed that even classroom learning of a, of a language and quite small amounts of classroom learning could already begin to affect primary language. So there was this one study done on university students taking Korean in Korea um, who were English speakers. And after something like only a few weeks of Korean, they were beginning to pronounce their English vowels in a more Korean way. That to me was shocking. I I had no idea that it could be that fast. Uh, I, I thought certainly with immigrant children, you know, they start to have Uh, interference very early on but apparently it can happen at any age but does it uh, does it it separates
3: out a bit though doesn't it I feel like when you've when you've got the new language ensconced as it were then the the separation is easier is that right what do you mean I mean so so that um, once you've while you're learning it you actually get both of them jumbled up but when you've got the new language pretty solid does that continue to interfere with the old one
5: Oh, I think so. Yes. And this is why a lot of fluent bilinguals or multilinguals will mix languages. Uh, Mm. They still have the structures of all of the languages are are clear and separate in their minds. So it's not really that they're messing up the languages, but there are many multilinguals who will just speak a a kind of fluent uh, hodgepodge Mm. um, of the languages. Maybe they're speaking one main language with words from another popped in in the grammatically correct places. So I I actually think the multilingual experience tends to be one in which uh, languages are kind of held together in the same Mm. mind and, and continue to interfere.
3: Well, and sometimes it's presumably because, I mean, the thing I think that's wonderful about it is it simply gives you access to another world. And I don't just mean another world of culture, which is, you know, wonderful in itself, but it's just it's another way of thinking, which, you know, it's, it's like a new gateway. And, and so sometimes um, you will have to look for the word in another language because it's very specific to that language or that culture or something like that.
5: I think the the way of thinking is not really separable from another culture. And, um, and you know, I think this is why language loss is really so dramatic when it does happen, and especially when entire languages are, are lost. As um, Sedevi points out, you know, linguists will talk about having saved a language, by which they mean they've written down the grammatical structures of it and, and recorded the vocabulary, you know, in a glossary or something. Mm. But that, that doesn't actually save a language because a language... Um, also resides in how people speak it, how uh, they communicate, what kinds of gestures and vocal intonations they use, how they make jokes, what kinds of songs they sing, and so on. so I think those are really um, really deeply intertwined and and it 's not really just about the fact that you know a word has a different etymology in in another language, but all of the ways that it would be used that 's really mm. what 's um, what's at stake and i feel that very profoundly because i'm a medievalist so i'm basically i spend my life studying languages for which we really only have a small trace uh of of what there was and we kind of try to use these mechanical ways to recover how old english was used or how middle english or latin and so on um mm. was used but it's it's really incomplete and and often unsatisfying
2: and that that yeah. element of grief of uh, uh, having lost a language as well it's it's something to do with, um, yes, so you're losing the the culture, but you're also, I think on an individual level, it's sort of about uh, you're losing access to, you're losing your chance at potentially uh, a very different life because you kind of conceive of yourself differently in that other language slash culture slash, um, you know, everything else that we've spoken about. So it's it's the sense of having lost so much more than than just the nuts and bolts of a, of a language or a skill that you once had yeah and you lose your memories
5: if mm. you if you spent years thinking about uh perceiving your entire life through one language and, and reflecting on it in that language so I lost my second language which was Hebrew and those two years are a blank to me I you know I've I've really lost two years of my
2: life because you sort well, of can't you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to reconstruct conversations that were had nothing. in that language no. yeah
3: no oh. everything's
2: gone yeah well and, and that's what um
3: that's how I was going to talk about what the costs of the language loss are because as you say it's not you miss jokes and songs and you also miss you miss nicknames you miss um slang you miss uh you, you mentioned them um, you you don't get um how how you might speak respectfully to an elder member of the community or how you might you know do baby talk to someone else it's 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 the whole thing that, that 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 you miss or lose but on the other hand how how do we keep them alive how how do we you know um
5: how do we keep them living so that they're not just written down in a book It's so hard. It's so hard and expensive and arduous. And I tell you, this is someone who is right now learning Hebrew again at age 41 and really (laughs) suffering for it. Um, But it's hard at a communal way, too. And and there are interesting projects um, uh, coming out of New Zealand uh, that were developed uh, primarily to preserve the Maori language. Um, They're called language nests in which you have um, elder speakers of the language taking care of infants or spending time with infants and toddlers and so on uh, and sharing as much of the language and culture with them quite early in their development so that they have a different kind of head start in in it so that it's not a school language for them. Uh, But those take enormous amounts of cooperation and funding and organization. And then the language has to be preserved once the children do enter school age. And there are successes, but, but they're hard won and they really have to be maintained. Mm, On the individual. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
3: Sorry, I was just going to say uh, we had a piece about a publishing initiative in New Zealand uh, by Brian Ng wrote for us uh, a while ago a pub- to publish 100 books in Maori over the next 25 years. Because the the, people, the there weren't many books being published because it was felt mm-hmm. the audience wasn't big enough, but it's for adults and children. So they're translating Harry Potter and they're doing classics and also original language works, which is just keeping it all, all going. But as you say, that takes an enormous amount of work and initiative and money.
5: Absolutely. And on the individual level, it's also quite tricky because an individual has to be very motivated. And uh, as Sedevi points out in the passage I found quite fascinating, most language classes are meant for new learners and they provide the kind of instruction that's useful for new learners, you know, like the famous train station dialogue or Mm. meeting strangers and so on, formal modes of address and that kind of thing. Uh, And they start at zero and go slowly up through the grammar. Whereas heritage learners have quite different needs, right? First of all, they might not even be interested in the standard dialect. They might be more interested in their own uh, dialect of origin uh, they might know quite a bit of the language passively, but not be able to produce it. They might be more interested in intimate conversations rather than, you know, the train station. Does anybody go to train <laughs> stations anymore? But, you know, yeah. um, so I think that's uh, that's what's so difficult is that the, the educational structures we have for teaching language really don't suit the needs of heritage speakers uh, who who are coming at it with a different set of associations and will often feel really bad if they're not doing well Mm. when they're taking a class in what ought to be their own language. That's, going to be quite painful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. I wondered, does she talk at all about um, speaking a language as a a kind of a physical act, even like the the muscular dimension of it, you know, the more, how, the more your bilingualism languishes and, and one language dominates, the harder it becomes to even get your mouth to make the right shape and your your, your neck muscles ache and that can be a really horrible mm. experience a bit like to nod back to the last time you were on this podcast turning up to the gym and being really out of shape it can be quite demoralizing and like humiliating even I think she, she talks about it more in terms of the phonetics and the
5: grammar but definitely about those emotions right she goes at one point in in the book uh back uh or to the Czech Republic and to her hometown um and it's very difficult for her because people there either expect her to be a speaker of a foreign language or a fluent speaker of Czech Mm -hmm. and they seem not to really be able to deal well with someone who speaks Czech badly and for her that's very painful and it's something that I've also felt going back to Romania when people ask me where I'm from uh, (laughs) because I speak Romanian with an accent Uh, that's that is mm. emotionally a very difficult thing to to deal with it's a powerful form of you know kind of alienation mm. Mm. and you have to go i'm here i'm from here
2: exactly you no
3: know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> really <laughs> and other places too yeah um so i guess the 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 thing we take from it is that the the emotion is absolutely i mean we might have thought already that the culture and history are intertwined, but that emotion is very much intertwined. And the thing to do is keep, keep speaking,
5: whatever it is you've got, keep, keep them alive at all costs. I think so. And I, I do agree with you, you know, that the language is a muscle right it, it absolutely is a muscle and that's the best way to treat it and this is not from Sedemi, me this is from me and from people i've <laughs> talked to um and the best way to do it is just to exercise it as much as possible uh, so you mm-hmm. know listen to songs and you know music and that digital radio makes this possible now and just practice it as much as possible
3: okay we all know what we've got to do not you two because you speak millions of languages between you but the rest of us uh, let's go to the linguistic gym Sing in 2022. foreign languages. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Irina, thank you so much for
5: joining us. Thank you too.
2: That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Chiara Marchelli and Irina Dimitrescu. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.